This morning, just for a few moments, I want to preach on the thought, the man, the myth, and the legend. The man, the myth, and the legend. Today, it's going to be really simple. Sometimes as pastors, we want to dig through the scriptures and find something so deep that when the parishioners leave church, you're like, wow, that was deep. That was good. Sheriff Grove, sometimes I think we can get so deep we get stuck. I'm not here to try to impress you on some sort of theological deepness. Now, there's a time for that. There is a time for that. There's a time for us to dissect the Scriptures and exegesis the Scriptures. There's a time, and I love that. But this morning, it's Friends and Family Day, and one of the things that they teach you about preaching is you always got to know your audience. Certainly, I'm not going to preach a camp meeting sermon to children's church. You know, you got to know your audience. And this morning, some of you may be from different religious backgrounds, you know. Maybe you're not used to this charismatic Pentecostal thing, and that's all right. Maybe you're from more of a reserved background, and this is new to you. And we respect that. Because in Christianity, there's all types of expressions of love, expressions of worship. And I love it all. See, I'm the type of person that I could go to a cathedral, I could go to a Catholic mass and understand it and enjoy it and receive something from it. I may not participate in all the prayers, but that which is good, I could understand. I could go to a Greek Orthodox church or a Baptist church because I've studied that. And so I understand their history, their liturgy, their doctrine. So I appreciate the diversity in Christianity. So I want to welcome you this morning if you feel like this is a little different, not, not used to the loud music and people raising their hands and jumping up and down. I want you to know that that's all right. We celebrate diversity in worship. And this morning, I just want to be simple. I just want to talk to you from my heart about the man, the myth, and the legend. It's something that you've heard in Sunday school, something that you've heard all your life, but it's something that is still beneficial and something that can be still transformative in your life if you open up your heart and you really listen. My points are just three points this morning. The man is the first point. Number two, the myth is the second point. And the third point is the legend. The man, the myth, the legend. Number one, I want to look at the man this morning. The man. When I was six years old, I went to church with my grandparents, as most of you know. My grandparents was a great influence in my life. And so I was used to Sundays being a day where you ate at home on Sunday afternoons after church. And you took a Sunday nap. I don't know about you, but I kind of still like that, don't you? You took a nap after you eat, and then guess what? You would get up and get dressed and go back to church on Sunday evening. It's kind of like when you went to church, you kind of smelt like fried chicken and perfume, you know? You ate chicken all day, and you have perfume on, and, you know, you, you go. And back then, you didn't have air conditioning, so my grandma would be sweating with the fan on, doing her hair, you know, and, and, and uh, I just remember those days. It was special days. And I remember getting out of the car with my grandparents, walking down the sidewalk to the church. Back then, church never started till 7.30 on Sunday evenings, quite late. 
So I remember walking to the building and they had already had music playing. I remember the pastor singing. They had the organ and the piano, the drums, and I could hear it outside as I was walking to the building. I remember as a little boy, as I was walking to the building, I remember distinctly having cold chills up my arms because I could hear the sound of the music as I walked to the building. And as I walked in the building, I felt this sensation that this is real. These people who are singing these songs, this is real. I remember sitting on the front seat with my grandpa. He played the steel guitar, you know, and I remember sitting there and I, at times I would shake and cry and I didn't even know what I was shaking and crying for because I felt this overwhelming sense of the presence of God. Ever since a little boy, I had a desire to serve God and I wanted to serve him with everything I had. I remember praying when I was just a little boy, asking the Lord if he wanted me to go overseas. What he wanted me to do, because I wanted to give all my life to him. I didn't want anything to hinder what God wanted to do in my life. I had this deep desire. You know, as a child, I was very reserved and quiet in, in public school. I never talked. I was very shy, very reserved. But when the Spirit touched me, I became very bold. I began to, even as a little boy, I remember having services in the playground with my friends. All my friends thought I was crazy. I remember in the playground playing. I remember in my bedroom taking a little Tupperware box and putting pennies in it. And I would stand there and my little cousin, Tasha, would take the little bucket and she'd shake it and we would sing. Of course, my cousin had to get saved every service. And then when she got saved, I told her she had to fall on the floor. And I remember her saying, Joshy, why do I have to fall on the floor? And I remember saying, because I'm the pastor. You need to get on the floor. So she'd fall on the floor, and then I would put a blanket over her. I tell her to get back up, and I use shampoo for oil. So I, I would put oil all over her forehead. <laughs> and she'd fall down again for hours. One of the very first gifts I ever got as a child, remember, was a little microphone. I was probably 12 years old. It was a microphone and you had to touch it and lights would flash up on you. And it was, I guess you was used it to sing. And so my parents bought this microphone and every Sunday after church, I'd go have my own church service with my cousins in the bedroom. And we'd play hours until we went back to church that night. I told you those stories to tell you something that some people think it's not real. Some people think it's just a figment of imagination. There are people who think that this experience is some sort of emotional manipulation. Or some people think that it's mental disorder. Some, somehow this is not accurate. People don't act that way. And I'm not here to try to prove to you that Christianity is true. I am just here to preach the gospel, and the gospel does the work. I'm here to let the Holy Spirit open your eyes up and reveal the truth to you. I will say that as a young boy, my life was radically changed to the deepest part of my life. 
And I stand here to tell you that it really, it really is life transformative. The Bible that I read, really, it really does work. The gospel that I preach, it really does save. The songs that we sing, it really is real. Sometimes we get so clouded by the issues of life. And sometimes we get lost in the valleys of life. Sometimes we get confused and trying to find our way, and sometimes life is hard. I get that. But I also realize the Scripture says in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there can never be a shadow in the valley if there's not light in the proximity of the valley. So no matter how dark your life may be, there is still light somewhere in the darkness. There's light somewhere in the darkness. My life was changed because I believed in a man. I didn't believe in a church. I didn't believe in an organization. And all of those are good and fine. But my life was changed because I believed in a man. A man. A historical man. Not only a historical man, but this man claims to be God. The man. A historical man that actually lived. A man who actually walked on the streets of Judea, lived in ancient Palestine, was raised by a young mother and an older father. The father was older, the mother was younger. In fact, history and also Scripture indicates to us that this man was born of a virgin. Kind of odd. His earthly father was Joseph. As a matter of fact, you don't hear much of Joseph's life. We assume he died when Jesus was young. But we do know that Jesus was a carpenter. This man was a carpenter. I'm sure this man had good physical health working in the heat every day, carrying the legacy of his earthly father, Joseph. He was probably dark-complected because he was Middle Eastern. He wasn't a light-complected, blue-eyed man. He wasn't an American Jesus. He was a Jew, dark-complected. He probably had a beard because that was the custom of men back then. And he probably had longer hair. He walked the streets of Judea. And he preached a different message that was odd to people. As a matter of fact, people, some people didn't like him. Some people didn't understand his message. He was never married. He never went to school. Never had a degree. He hung around with 12 men and called them his disciples. They went through the cities and streets preaching. And what's really odd about this man is this man not only preached, but he also healed the sick. In one occasion, he raised somebody from the dead. But what's interesting about this man is that this man never abused his power. Now, let's just stop here. 
if I was this man, I probably would have some fun with the power, wouldn't you? I mean, I think it would be awesome. The religious leaders back-talking you, you know what I would do? I would just suspend them from the air. You know, you know what I'm saying? I'd let roaches infest their rooms. You know what I'm saying? I, just, I would just do something crazy. I would send scorpions to them. You know, I would, I would just aggravate them. But Jesus never abused his power. He always used his power in the context to meet somebody's needs. If they were hungry, he fed them. If they were sick, he healed them. If they were grieving, he comforted them. He never abused his power. Even when the political system accused him falsely, he never degraded them. He never accused them. He answered truthfully. Very little is known about this man in his younger years. Lots is known about him from 30 to 33. We assume that he had siblings. The Scripture indicates that he probably had some brothers and sisters through the union of Mary and Joseph. Jesus was just one of those siblings. We know that one of his half-brothers, Jude, wrote a book. But the Bible tells us, the Scriptures that I read, that even his family didn't believe in him. They had a hard time believing that a carpenter from a little town of Nazareth was called to do anything special. It's hard for people to see that a church in Galena is called to do anything special. We're not a big city. We're not a metropolitan city. But this city belongs to God. And God loves this city. He loves this city. And God, God does His work in little cities. God does miracles in little towns. God shows up in the little forgotten town that everybody writes off. That's where God shows up. And right in that little town called Nazareth, this man started to do the miraculous. Many people wrote him off and said, he's just the devil. He's after his own agenda. He's just making a name for himself. But this man continued to preach a radical way of life. This man, according to history and the Scriptures, tells us that he never sinned. It's a hard concept, isn't it? We are mortals. We struggle with doing what's right and what's wrong. But Scripture and history tells us this man never did anything wrong. And yet, when he was 33 and a half years old, the government, Rome, Rome was a superpower. They didn't like this man. Now, why didn't they like him? Well, just think about it. Here is a young Jewish man who's preaching a different message with 12 men 
and they go everywhere preaching and teaching, and he has great followings. Thousands of people come to hear him. In the eyes and the minds of the Romans, they're thinking, this man is going to start a revolt, and they're going to take Rome over. So we got to shut him up. And that's exactly what they did. Rome wanted to shut his mouth, shut down his gatherings, shut down his miracles, shut down his teachings because they were afraid that he would start a revolt and capture Rome. But you see, this man... He didn't care anything about a political system. He didn't care about establishing an earthly kingdom. His kingdom was from another world. But they didn't see that. And what did they do? They took him. And they crucified him. An innocent man. That cross over there is the symbol of Christianity all around the world. It is an execution chair. I'm sure that if Christians that lived 2,000 years ago or Rome would come today in the modern cities and see church buildings with crosses, they would be horrified. Why are you worshiping a cross? Why is that the symbol of your movement and your religion? It's just like us 2,000 years from now coming back and looking on buildings and seeing an execution chair. Doesn't make sense, does it? But they crucified him. And those Jewish believers, his followers, they stood at the foot of the cross and they wept. They thought it was over. This man is not who he said he was. And as a matter of fact, only a couple people showed up at the cross. Most of them left him. Because my friends, usually when you're in the deepest, darkest place of your life, when you need people the most, is when you will find that people will really will not come to your rescue. Nobody was there. Just a few women and his best friend, John. That, that was it. They lost hope. As a matter of fact, a secret disciple by the name of Nicodemus, you remember the story? He comes to Pilate and says, give me the body. He begged for it. So they took it down and wrapped it in linen cloth and put it in a tomb. And it's interesting, according to Scripture, that this man, three days after he was buried in a borrowed tomb, the Bible says in Matthew 28 that an angel descended, rolled away the stone, and this man walks out as if he had never died, healthy and whole. And the angel said to those women who were weeping, I know you're seeking for Jesus. He's not here. He's risen. And you know what? I love this story. Because those women were the first preachers. Those women went throughout the city preaching that this dead man that we lost, that we lost our heart. We thought he was gone. He's now alive. And these women were so infiltrated with passion and belief that they became the first women preachers. I want to say, I believe in women preachers. Can I hear an amen? I believe 
if Mary could carry the Word, then women could preach the Word. And here these women preached that Jesus is alive. He ascended and told His disciples to go and preach the Gospel to every creature. And from that very moment, those 12 disciples, you know, the world didn't believe in Him. Twelve disciples who were from Capernaum and Nazareth and Chorazin. You know, those are very, very small cities. Those disciples who were custom fishermen. Those disciples who everybody wrote off. Those disciples who lived in little cities that nobody thought God could do anything with. Those disciples went throughout the world and change the world. You see, this church today and every other church in town and in this city, in this world, is a direct result of 12 disciples who the world said would never amount to anything. And guess what? They changed the world. And I want to say something. When the world writes you off and the world says it can never be done. And the world says there is no hope. And there's a black check mark against your name because of your faults and your failures. I want to let you know that if God could use 12 disciples who was uneducated, illiterate, 12 disciples who had anger issues and emotional issues. Twelve disciples who didn't understand what Jesus was doing. He used them, took them from a small town, and they changed the world. And every church in the world is a direct result of twelve men who established churches and missionaries. And after 2,000 years, we are still in existence because God believed in twelve men. What? What could God, what could God do here in Galena? What could God do in Galena? We're kind of like a Nazareth, aren't we? A small city. Everybody writes it off. Surely if God's going to move, he'll move in Joplin. It's bigger. If God's going to move, he'll move in LA because, you know, that's where the most people are at. If God's going to do something, He'll probably do it somewhere else. Because we have nothing to offer. But I want to tell you something. Don't discount what God can do in a little city with a little church with people who have a desire to make a difference. Somebody... Are you all hearing me today? I said, don't ever discount what God wants to do with a few people in a little city. Is there anybody in the building that can say, I thank God for Galena and I thank God for our history and I thank God for what God wants to do with this city in this church. You know, in the turn of this century... 1906, around that area, Charles Parham 
the father of Pentecost, had a great revival in Galena. It changed this area and changed the city of Joplin. That's why you have the apostolic movement so popular in this area. His house was right down the street, right beside of Galena Assembly of God, that little green house. He held meetings at Mary Arthur's house across the street, the White House. Our history is primed with a spiritual awakening and revival. And my prayer is today, Lord, that was over a hundred years ago. I'm asking the Lord, will you do it again? Will you do it? I'm talking about a revival that will change every aspect of this church. A revival that will change our city. A revival that will change our schools. A revival that will change our government. A revival, a spiritual awakening. Do it again. Is there anybody that has my heart this morning saying, God, will you use the city of Galena and use our church again for the gospel and the power of Christ? If you're a part of this city, I want you to speak life into this city. Never discount what God wants to do. Don't speak negative about it. Your words have power. Speak life into it. Speak blessings over this city. The man, the man, this man, is the greatest man in history. He had no servants, but they call him master. He had no degree, they call him teacher. He had no medicine, they called him the healer. He had no army, but yet the armies of the earth feared him. He won no military victories, and yet he has conquered the world. He had never committed a crime, but yet they crucified him. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, but yet he lives today. He is the greatest man in history. He has divided A.D. from B.C. He is the greatest man in history. He is the most loved man. But he is also the most hated man in the world. He's hated. Jesus is only loved when he agrees with your beliefs. But the moment that the church and Jesus don't believe, uh, agree with your belief system, Jesus is not popular. Jesus is only popular if he agrees with you. It's interesting to me. If your God never disagrees with you, then it's possible you could be worshiping an idolized version of yourself. The man has changed the world. He's changed me. He's changed me as a little boy. He's changed the world. He continues to change the world. The churches of 2.3 billion people around the world. He is moving around the world. The church is not dying. It's not sick. It's very strong and vibrant because it's His church. The myth 
the myth is, could this be true? Is Jesus Lord? Is he a liar or is he a lunatic? I mean, if you really believe the words of Jesus, you really believe what he said, then either he is Lord of your life or he's a liar. You can't be in the middle, you know. You can't either it's true or it's not true. And the myth is, is that Jesus is alive and well, but Jesus is not concerned about you. He's a distant God in the galaxies. He's too busy ruling the world to be concerned about your needs. Many people believe that. You know how I know people believe that? Because they always, and there's nothing wrong with this, but they'll always say, would you pray for me because God will heal your prayers. You see, we have bought in this lie that only the clergy can approach God and only the clergy can pray and somehow they can get a hold of God for us. That's a myth. The truth is, is that God wants to hear you and that God loves you and that God hears your prayers and that you are special and that you are unique. It's not about bishops and pastors and teachers. It's about the church as a whole. And he loves us all the very same. Loves us the same. Don't buy in the myth that God is not concerned about you. God doesn't care about you. That God doesn't have a purpose for you. That God doesn't have a plan for you. It's a myth. The truth is, is that He died for your freedom and for your purpose. He died for the lost. He died for the least. And He died for the last. The myth is that somehow God is too busy to be concerned with me. That He's too busy counting the hairs on people's heads to be concerned with me. He's too busy with the galaxies and the planets to be concerned with me. And I want to tell this church something today. I don't care how many times you come to this altar and how many times you confess the same sin or how many times you mess up and how many times you have an anger problem or how many times you have a porn problem or how many times you struggle with this or struggle with that. I don't care. What I do care is if you've got to keep struggling, keep struggling in the same Direction. Struggle to victory. Struggle in the right direction. Don't ever give up. Because the myth is, the myth is that you have sinned too much for God to forgive you. You keep committing the same sin over and over and over, so somehow you've exhausted the grace of God. And I've come to tell you the myth is a lie today. Peter said, Lord, how many times should I forgive? Jesus said, 70 times 7. You know, Jesus was in essence saying, it doesn't matter. Because my grace is an ocean and your sin is a pebble. So when your sin touches my grace, my grace engulfs the pebble of your sin. It doesn't matter. I don't care what you're struggling with. Come to Jesus again. 
I don't care how much you're hurting. Say, Pastor, you prayed for me last week. I don't care. Come again. Because there's more grace and more forgiveness and more love. It's inexhaustible. It's an ocean. You can never drain His love and His mercy and His grace. And I'm telling you, He stands with arms open wide and He says, come to me. Don't buy into the myth that there's no hope for you. Don't buy into the myth that your sin and the sin that you struggle with somehow is a black mark against you. In closing, the legend. You know, this man, certainly he has a legend. The first three letters in the word legend is leg. There's movement. Jesus, even though He's not here in person, certainly He's not here. And we worship somebody that we cannot see. Isn't that interesting? We give to the church and we say we give to the Lord, but you can't see the Lord. I ask you, would you worship the Lord? But you can't see Him. This religion, this relationship we have is invisible. It's faith. The Apostle Paul said the things that you see are temporal, but the things you do not see are eternal. This is a life of faith. And our faith is tested by external things. To see if the internal experience is truly real. There is a legend. Jesus is quite famous. There's orphanages built after his name. Mercy Hospital is erected to him. Hospitals bear his name and the saints. Churches erect steeples. Why steeples? Because we're pointing high that there's one God. Churches, orphanages, hospitals, you name it. His name has been erected through every continent of the world. He's famous. And let's just stop here. Oh, he's not always popular, but his, his reputation still succeeds him. He is remembered throughout all of the world. He's remembered for his teachings. He's remembered for his miracles. He's remembered for his love. But I want to end with this. Do you know why his legend continues today? Oh, yes, I just told you there's churches and hospitals, orphanages. Yes, there's things that's visible that shows us that Jesus existed. Jesus has made an impact. But I don't know if those things are really what keeps Christianity going. I think 
that if we really be honest with ourselves, the legend continues because of you. You continue his legacy. You're the one that continues the legend. How is that so? There are many of you, as I look across this audience, you say, Pastor, I remember a few years ago I was on drugs. I lost my family. I felt like there was no hope. And I was getting ready to take my life. I know some of you that's sitting here that has that testimony. You're here today. And as I look at you during worship, you had your hands lifted. And you know what comes to my heart? I look at you and I say, the legend continues. The legend continues. I look at people. I look at people. And I see how they were sick in their body, Sister Beth. How the doctors gave up on you because I was there and said that there's no hope. But Sister Beth, stand up. You know why the legend continues? It continues through Beth. And as her hands are lifted, she's a testimony that he brought me through the deepest, darkest hour of my life. Some of you, you say, Pastor, I remember how I lost so and so. And my heart was so grieved and I don't know how I made it through. But somehow I made it through. I, 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 I filed for bankruptcy and lost everything I had. And I was at the very lowest of low in my life. And I didn't think I could ever make it. But somehow I'm at church this morning. And I want to let you know his legacy continues. The legend continues because we got people like you in this church that will say no matter what people say, I know it's true because I'm a living example that he saves, he heals, he delivers, he redeems, he restores. I know it's true. I know it's true. Somebody stand to your feet and give God praise. Come on, somebody give God glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The legacy continues, my friends. It continues through you. And I'm asking you today, when you leave this church, each one, reach one, I'm asking you, come on the journey with me. And invite somebody to church. Come on the journey with me. Let's think outside the box. Come on the journey. Let's make a difference. Come on the journey. Let's impact our city. Come on the journey. Let's believe in our city. Let's believe in our church. I'm asking you to invite somebody to church. Each one, reach one. And how are you going to do that? Because you are continuing the legacy. You say, preacher, I don't know what to say to him. That's okay. Just look at him and say, I remember, bro, a few years ago, I was sick, I was depressed, lost it all. I just want to share with you, man. I'm here today because God brought me through. Who can argue with that? Oh, they can argue with the scriptures but they can't argue with your testimony. I'm asking you to open your mouth this week and invite somebody to church. I'm asking you to make it a goal this year to be missional. Invite somebody. Share your story. Share the legacy. And as you remain standing, I read this passage. 
If they can put it behind me, that would be wonderful. If not, it's really no big deal. I'm just springing this on them. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. I just want to read this so you can go home. Hebrews 10. Excuse me. Hebrews 11 verse 38. Hebrews 11 verse 38. The hall of faith. Paul gives a description of all these people that lived. All the people that the world said would never make a difference. And in the middle, Paul said this, of whom the world was not worthy. Paul said, those people that the world said would never do anything, he said, the world wasn't even worthy of them because they had such great faith. And let it be said of Christ's point, let it be said of ourselves that the world was not worthy of us because we lived such lives of faith and trust in spite of opposition, in spite of doubt and unbelief. We lived a life of such faith and trust in God that the world was not worthy of us.